0: This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Thanks so much for being here. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. If you're here today and you don't have a copy of the Bible, if you'll raise your hand, our ushers bring you a free copy. You can follow along with me and then be able to take that home with you. Just raise your hand. Leave them up if you want a copy of the Bible. We also have Spanish translations if you need that. And turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, New Testament, second gospel, chapter one. We're going to read the first eight verses and focus on verses four through eight this morning in our series on this gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." This is God's inerrant inspired Holy Word for us this morning. I believe the Lord wants to set us free from sin and. Help us find our true joy in Christ today. I think that's the the main point of this text for us. I'm gonna begin with a professor at the University of Kentucky, Eric Reese. He's a environmental journalist. He's offered several books, including a book called American Gospel on family history and the kingdom of God. The Bible demands, as we've been doing all morning in these wonderful songs we've been singing, that we exalt Christ over everyone and everything else. And Mr. Reese doesn't like that. He's not the only one that finds this to be a stumbling block to faith. But for him, it's, it's more personal. I heard him on National Public Radio and I did a little research on him and found out that his father and his grandfather were Baptist pastors in rural Virginia. And when he was three years old, his father committed suicide. And they found his father beside his Bible. And it's, it, his father's Bible was, was open to Matthew 10 where it says... Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The the interviewer on National Public Radio asked, about something he wrote in his book, she seemed shocked by what he had written. He had that verse and then he, he asked the question, who is the egomaniac speaking these words? And he, she just asked him to elaborate. Is he completely self-centered? Is Jesus a raving egomaniac? A me monster? To make statements like, whoever loves his mom more than me isn't worthy of me. If you you think like Mr. Reese, John the Baptist is going to be impossible for you to understand. His, His reaction to Jesus Christ and his claims of who he is, who he thought he was, is exactly the opposite to this. John the Baptist comes along and when Jesus would say something like this, He says amen. In fact, John says it has to be this way. It's his mission in life. The ministry of Jesus begins with the coming of John the Baptist. And John was actually a source of great hope to the nation of Israel. He comes, we saw in verse three, to prepare the way of the Lord, to make his path straight. And then Mark in verse four says, John appeared. That's very typical of the Gospel of Mark. Get used to it. It's just, it's it's sudden, it's abrupt, it's immediate, it's action. John appeared. And it makes it clear, John is the messenger foretold for hundreds of years by the prophets in the Old Testament, including Isaiah. And he's come, he's appeared. And Mark's description of John. We learn a lot of other things about John in the other Gospels, but as you will come to expect from Mark, it's very concise, it's focused, it's defined what he tells us about John the Baptist. He doesn't tell us about his birth, Luke does. He doesn't tell us about his confrontations with the religious leaders from Jerusalem, like the other Gospels do. He doesn't talk about the specifics of his call for reformation among the people. He just depicts John as the fulfiller of this role prophesied in the Old Testament and that he's the forerunner of this one who is more powerful. The one whose sandals he is unworthy to untie. He appears and he's baptizing in the wilderness. He's like Elijah in the Old Testament. He's the new Elijah who was to come. He's identified with the, the wilderness. This country around the Jordan where John ministered is exactly where Elijah ministered. One commentator called it a vast and barren bad lands of Judah. I, I picture the bad lands we have in the United States out west. There are living things there but not humans unless you make some serious efforts. It's a wilderness and John appears in this wilderness and Mark is all about action, concise. He wants us to catch this because throughout the history of Israel, the wilderness is a, a place of hope. It's a place of repentance. It's a place of grace. It's where God brings deliverance. First of all, the wilderness of Sinai. If you remember the exodus from Egypt where God first began to form His people, He redeemed them from slavery and He brought them first though into the wilderness and for 40 years they wandered. And then the prophets pick up on this and they talk about the wilderness. It's a symbol of hope. And so John has come now. He's a sign of hope. He's fulfilling the promises of the prophets. The the Jewish people are looking for the coming of the last days when God would cleanse His people. When He would pour out His Spirit. And John got their attention. They're flocking out to John. They're filled with expectations. And he doesn't disappoint. He literally points to the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. There is an answer to the the seeming egomania of Jesus Christ and His demand that we embrace Him as the supreme treasure of the universe. He is supremely valuable. He is supremely satisfying. Receiving Him for who He is is the only way you will ever find true and lasting joy. So His demand that we exalt Him is not egomania, it's love. Love. And that's what John's trying to tell us this morning. So let's look at his ministry. John's ministry and John himself exalt Christ in a way that is compelling. And we don't want to miss three striking implications of his message. Number one, I don't have the lead role. Number two, my sin is against me. And number three, the Spirit is for me. Number one, I don't have the lead role. The movie is not about me. Verse 7, John preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I can't even take the place that the lowest slave would have. Matthew and Luke, they they focus on John's message of reformation and renewal, but Mark is after john's message that there's one coming who is better there's one coming who's more powerful than me the strap of his sandals i'm not worthy to stoop down and untie in in the first century that task that loosing of sandals washing of feet that was the duty of a slave and it was considered so low that Only Gentile slaves could do it, not a Jewish slave. Even a Jewish slave was not allowed to do this. It was considered too humiliating. This is a statement of John's humility, but more than that, it's a statement of the fact that he recognizes who this is that is coming. This is him submitting to Jesus Christ. It's recognizing this is the Savior. The big fact is not that I, John the Baptist, have come. It's that He's coming. John recognized he didn't have the lead role. He embraced it. Paul Tripp's a Christian counselor and he says this in a book about how to change, how to be helped in your soul how to deal with the issues in your life he says this sin makes us glory thieves there's probably not a day when we do not plot to steal glory that rightfully belongs to the lord sin causes us to steal the story and and rewrite it with ourselves as the lead and with our lives it's center stage but there is only one stage And it belongs to the Lord. Any attempt to put ourselves in His place puts us in a war with Him. It's an intensely vertical war. A fight for divine glory. A plot to take the very position of God. It is the drama that lies behind every sad earthly drama. Sin has made us glory robbers. Sin makes us glory thieves, glory robbers. John the Baptist was not a glory robber. Paul Tripp, he works with people to help them experience real change in their lives by the grace of God, through the redemption that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And he says real change begins here. Don't steal the glory. I don't have the lead role. I love the story. Mark doesn't tell us about John's birth, but Luke does. And I love the story. John's mother is actually related to Jesus' mother. I love the story when Luke 1 says, in those days Mary arose. They're both miraculously expecting a child and Mary rose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, her relative, John's mother. Okay, so, so Mary's expecting Jesus, and Elizabeth is expecting John be, be quite a cousin's night. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Even in the womb, John's all about Jesus Christ. He has the lead role. All the glory rightfully belongs to him, and John the Baptist is exactly right. It's exactly right. If you know who he is, if, if you have a revelation, if the eyes of your heart are enlightened, and you see who he is, you will leap for joy there's a movie star named brad pitt terrible fly fisherman but very successful movie star he said religion works i know there's comfort there uh, a crash pad it's something to explain the world tell you there's something bigger than you it's going to be all right in the end it works because it's comforting i grew up believing in it it worked for me and whatever my little personal high school crisis was, but it didn't last for me. I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me, you have to say that I'm the best, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you won't, you you don't get it. Seemed to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. It sounds like the professor from Kentucky, doesn't he? Eric Reese? And I understand his comment because there's a a difference between religion and the great treasure of the kingdom of God. Fellowship with God in Christ. There's There's a difference. They're two very different things. Without the surpassing value of knowing Christ, religion makes no sense to me. It has no appeal to me. John Saul, Christ, for who He is and what He came to do, reconcile us to god it's it's the great treasure of life. He preached verse seven saying after me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie I have baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the holy spirit John John knew his role he was going to prepare the way for this one to come the one who has the lead role and then he was going to fade to black so to speak he was going to fade away This was his path to fullness of joy. In John 1, there's a great story in the Gospel of John. John the disciple of Jesus, not John the Baptist, tells about John the Baptist. He saw Jesus coming toward him. said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he loved to do. He loved to see Christ and say, behold, look, there he is. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. That's his message. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to the nation of Israel, that you might see him for who he is. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said again, who knows how many times, Oh, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus ranks before John, Jesus ranks before me. I don't have the lead role, Jesus ranks before you. The movie isn't about us. And John's purpose is to make this known. His role is to see that Jesus is revealed to Israel and to the world. His own disciples leave him and follow Jesus. But for John, this this isn't threatening. This is his definition of success. This should be our definition as a church as individual Christians, this should be our definition of success. In John 3, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing there. There was a lot of water there. And people were coming and being baptized. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine, my disciples are leaving, everybody's going to him. He's baptizing, I'm baptizing. I'm losing. Now I'm happy. He must, verse 30, this captures John. He must increase, I must decrease. Tells you all you need to know about John the Baptist and his calling and our calling. It's hard for Eric Reese and Brad Pitt to understand except for the grace of God, none of us will understand this. But when you're given eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, you get John the Baptist. Uh, Of course, he's decreasing, but his joy is increasing. Oh, may it be that all the glory Goes to Jesus Christ from our lives. I am not the Christ. He must increase. John's just a voice crying in the wilderness. The tension is going to Jesus, and he's happy about that. He's the friend of the groom, not the groom. The groom is getting all the, the attention. They're taking pictures of the groom. And John's happy about this. Jesus demands that we treasure him over everyone and everything. To many, this is self-focus, self-exaltation. John Piper says, God is infinitely wise, just, holy, strong, and good. But God's command that we see him for what he is and be glad about it is a stumbling block to many. God's godness has always been the main problem. It's a stumbling block. Jesus demands we love him more than anyone. He demands we follow him, trust him, enjoy him, be satisfied in him, delight in him, obey him. And many respond exactly the opposite of John the Baptist. John lived his life being guided by this principle. When Jesus becomes greater in the world and I become lesser in the world, My joy increases. That's our calling. I don't have the lead role. A second implication of John's ministry and his preaching is my sin is against me. My sin is against me. Verse 4, John uh, appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptizing, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. How do you prepare the way for the Lord? How do you make his past straight? You preach repentance from a sinful life. You offer forgiveness of sin. Verse 5, all the country of Judea, all Jerusalem were going out to him. All were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. They were confessing their sins. Repent, confess, forgiveness. They're all going out to John. What are they doing? They're turning from their sins. John pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Sin is not your friend. Sin is not for you. Sin is against you. My sin is against me. It doesn't bless you. It doesn't give you joy. That's the big lie. In verse 6, it says, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. wasn't exactly dressing for success, his clothing would have been nearly as unusual then as it would be to us now. He was dressing like a prophet, especially the prophet Elijah. In 2 Kings, we learn that Ahaziah, king of Israel, Ahab's son, fell through the lattice and sent servants to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if he would recover from his sickness. And God sent a prophet to meet the messengers that were going to Beelzebub along the way. And they, these messengers met the prophet. He heard what they were all about and he told them to go back to the king and ask him, is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? So the messengers go back to the king and he asked, What did that prophet look like? And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Literally, he wore a shaggy goat-haired garment. You know it's Elijah when just not too many people wearing that kind of clothing. For John the Baptist, it's a camel hair robe, but everyone thought that's Elijah. That's the Elijah that was to come. And don't miss, he's eating locusts and wild honey. He's a foodie. He wants no chemicals, hormones. He wants it farm to table. He wants his locusts raised in a caring, natural environment. Listen, eating locusts may offend you, but it was lawful. Didn't violate the Old Testament law. These locusts are still eaten in many parts of the world today. But there's there's a prophetic message here. It may offend you that he's eating locusts. But to the people of Israel, it was hope. This is what we've been waiting for. This is God on the, on the move. He wasn't one of the celebrity pastors in Jerusalem. He's in the desert regions. He's Elijah. He gets in the face of Herod, it costs him his life. That's what Elijah did. Elijah was the thundering prophet who came and confronted kings and restored Israel's relationship. You may remember his confrontation on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. John is Elijah to come and people are flocking to hear him. He's calling them away from their comfortable daily life He's radical. He's he's preaching a baptism of repentance. He calls him to baptism, baptism. It's, It's a symbol of renewal, of cleansing. And he didn't tolerate fakes. He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said, you brood of vipers? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, he wasn't exactly gentle all the time. The Greek word for baptism means to, to plunge, to immerse, to dip fully. He plunged people. It came to him on the Jordan River and he plunged them down into the Jordan. It was a radical sign of repentance and renewal. a a changed life Israel was God's nation the Jews were God's people his treasured possession and John's baptism symbolized the kind of moral change required to be his people spiritual transformation if they were going to be faithful to their calling they had to repent his baptism was a proclamation repentance it boils John's message down to one word repentance. It means to change your mind. It's an act, it's a decision, it's not an emotion. Think of someone being converted. Change. He's proclaiming this, he's preaching this. Repent. It's an opportunity for them, for God to do something. They knew this. It was a moment for God's grace. They were flocking out to hear this message because they had hope that God would do something. Now let's pause for a minute. Apply this in our lives. You know, a call to repentance is not necessarily moralistic preaching. It certainly can be. But after the cross and the resurrection, the disciples continued to preach repentance. Paul said in Romans 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Listen, Jesus came to cleanse us and free us from sin. My sin is against me. No one has written, in my opinion, more faithfully, more scripturally, more biblically, more truthfully on justification by faith alone than John Owen. And and he acknowledged that this doctrine is criticized by many because it's thought to discourage obedience, holiness, good works. He said the only standard for determining the truth about this doctrine of justification by faith alone is the Scripture, but he was ready to accept. He even said it ought to be done, a second trial of this or any other doctrine. And that second trial is look at the life of the people that accept it. Look at how they walk, how they live. Those who accept justification by faith alone. And he said, if it doesn't preserve its station by this rule, if it doesn't promote Christ like living obedience, then he says, I shall be content that it be exploded. (laughs) I shall be content that it be exploded. This is what Paul means when he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Grace is amazing. We no longer have to serve sin. We've been set free. My sin is against me. Be set free from sin. It's trying to keep you from Christ and find true joy in Christ. John preached for the people. Turn away from sin. Be cleansed. It wasn't just for the overtly sinful. It was for religious people. He proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and they flocked to Him. They wanted to be cleansed. They wanted to be clean. They wanted to be prepared. They wanted to meet the Lord. They wanted God to act. When I, when I have the grandkids over and I'm babysitting and we have dinner and it's time for cleanup, I have... A dish rag that I wipe them off with, I I call the rag of death. My grandchildren run in terror when they say, okay, it's time for the rag of death. I can clean off spaghetti from their face with the rag of death. When grandfather gets done, these kids are cleansed. No one likes my methods. It scares mothers into hiding. Kids run in terror. But no one can argue that they are clean and there is no way to get them any cleaner than I get them with the rag of death. John's, John's ministry blessed people. It got them clean. Sin is against us. And Christ has come to set us free. And that leads us finally to his last point. The Spirit is for me. I have baptized you, verse eight, with water, but he will baptize with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. It's a a baptism that is a reality. It's not a symbol. It's a reality. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's an extraordinary statement because in the Old Testament, What the Jews knew was only God baptizes with the Spirit. This is grace he's talking about. Grace is the gift of the Spirit. When you are given the gift of the Spirit, it's a blessing. It's a blessing that comes to us from our resurrected Lord Who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross, who was raised from the dead, and now has poured out his spirit on his people. John says the coming one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will baptize you, will plunge you into the spirit. He will come in the power of God. He will bind the strong man. He will plunder his house. He will set the captives free. And he will baptize them with the Spirit. It's spiritual power. It's the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's not a satanic spirit. It's not an evil spirit. It's God's spirit, and it will set you free. He takes away the sin of the world. He gives you forgiveness, and he gives you power. The prophetic words today were very much in line with this. The Lord, I felt, was encouraging us what he wants to do in our lives. Your sin is against you, David said in Psalm 16, the sorrows of those who run after another god will multiply. Satan wants you to run after another god. Beelzebub, money, fame. Paul says don't be ignorant of his designs. Don't be outwitted by him. He wants to keep you from this one we're talking about. He wants to keep you from the one John is proclaiming. John John is preaching and proclaiming. And we hear his voice today. He is the one. Here is hope. Here is change. Here is deliverance. Here is freedom. Here is joy. It comes through him. He's the one. I am happy to fade out of the limelight. He was popular. People were flocking to John. He was glad to give it all away and let them flock to Christ. That was his purpose. He's the one. That's how great he is. That's how glorious he is. That's what He's worthy of. He's worthy of us transferring all the glory to Him. He comes to set us free. It's why we exist. It's our calling. Be set free from sin. Find this great treasure of fellowship with God in Christ. He loved me and gave himself for me. That's the good news. That's what John was proclaiming and preaching. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of Mark. Thank you, Lord, for this revelation of the one to come that has now come and has lived a perfect life and yet died on the cross for our sins, who you raised through the power of your Spirit, Lord. And Lord, today we pray that you would manifest your presence and open the eyes of our heart and let us see, Lord, the glory of God in the face of Christ. ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.